millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Forma here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. This week's episode features a conversation between our very own Andrew Kern, Brian Phillips, and Matt Bianco. Recently, we published a book called Tales of Wonder, which is a curation of several important classic fairy tales, along with discussion questions to, to guide your you know, reading of them with students. One of the questions that was included in that collection is how students feel about the ending of the story. Of course, many people don't believe that a student's feelings are relevant to the discussion of literature. So in today's episode, Andrew, Brian, and and Matt are going to discuss that very topic, why we included that question, and why we think the question is actually quite valuable when properly understood. So they're going to attempt to to help make that clear and uh, help focus that discussion a little bit and give some context for why we included that question in that book. Before we get to that, though, let me say a quick word from our friends over at the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University, where they're preparing the next generation of Christian leaders through a great books course of study emphasizing faith, wisdom, and virtue. Honors students at Azusa Pacific enjoy several benefits, including an honors scholarship, small Socratic-style classes, a curriculum with no secondary textbooks, no exams, and no busy work, exemption from general education courses, access to honors housing, and free trips to world-class arts experiences across Southern California. To learn more about the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University, head over to apu.edu honors. Again, that's apu.edu honors. All right, with that, I'm going to kick it over to this conversation between Brian Phillips, Matt Bianco, and Andrew Kern on the subject of what do feelings have to do with reading great books. Enjoy. So, Brian, you, you guys developed that Tales of Wonder book, and I noticed that you included a question that was about the reader's feelings, and... It seems to me that, that feelings are can be a terrible distraction when you're reading a book to be worried about your feelings. So what the heck? Why did you do that? Um, why did we include the question about feelings? Yeah, how's um, the question go? You have the book in your, in your lap there. Yeah, we, we... Well, we included several questions in the reading itself. So questions to ask while reading the story but uh we also we do have a question how does the ending make you feel uh why does the ending make you feel that way um i think the reason we put the question 
at least from my perspective, one of the reasons we put the question there is that you've just encountered the end of the story. In fairy tales, the end of the story is going to evoke a certain response. It's going to evoke a, um, a powerful um, reaction to what's just happened. Um, and so we want to allow the reader, whether it's homeschool students or teachers or you know whoever is reading this, even just an individual, to interact with that event immediately after it happens. The event, you mean the event in the story? Yes, the ending of the story. So, so you ask them about their feelings to get them to interact with the event? Yes. I think for one thing, that's, that is a, one of the purposes of a fairy tale is to, to cause you to respond to that event. It's not just moralizing, it's causing you to, um, one of the goals of a fairy tale, it seems to me, is to cause you to feel how you ought to feel about a given subject or a given character or event. Um, that's part of rhetoric. Therefore, it's part of storytelling, right? Part of rhetoric is using argument and proof to cause the audience to feel how they are, how they should properly feel, right? That's one of the types of proof. Let me, let me throw something out for further consideration because when you just said that, and I don't mean to talk about it right now, but I can't let this go. How do you avoid just being manipulative when you're going after people's feelings like that? Um, for now, I don't think we have to talk about that because Matt, Matt's over there trying to say something. Well, let me, before we let Matt say Go something, ahead, do all the talking, um, Brian. It's cool. <laughs> I'm just here for eye candy anyway. Right, right. You you have a podcast face. eye candy. You have a face for podcasts. Um, but I I would say that it's not it's not a matter of manipulating their feelings. You're you're getting the obvious out of the way. I think if you don't allow, you mean by asking that question, yeah, you're getting it, the obvious out of the way. Well, you're letting them you're letting them interact with what's on their mind at that moment. And I think if you delay letting them respond to the ending of the story, then it's going to make it difficult for them to move forward in conversation about the story. So that's one of the benefits of asking it where we put it. What why why do you choose to get them to respond to the ending of the story? in a feelings centered way instead of in a, I guess a factual sort of way or a more generals maybe react. How do you react to this? The, um, in the introduction, there's some introductory essays to the book, to the tales of wonder book that, uh, Brian and I wrote. And I think in, in, in a couple of them, this idea keeps coming up that, that there's, there are two ways to communicate truth in, 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 a, in writing. There are two ways to communicate truth to somebody. Um, what, what Hicks refers to as the mythos and the logos in norms and nobility. Um, you know, we can, we can state the truth propositionally or we can embody it in a story. And the, the argument going all the way back to, you know, the first mythos writers uh, story writers is that the a story moves us to action, moves us to virtue in a way that the propositional statement does not. Um, our our introductory articles don't necessarily connect these dots, but I think there's a parallel here, or 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 an implicit acknowledgement here that. Um, you know, that it's our feelings connected to our imagination that, that does that, that Hicks says in norms that, um, virtue is only possible through the imagination. Um, and so the, the idea then is that by, by pointing out or getting them to ask that question and bringing that out, that they're, they're seeing the power of what the myth the power that the mythos has that the logos doesn't have. They're they're able to articulate it through their you know whatever their emotional reaction is to it. 
And, and I, I don't know that to the other question about manipulation, it's, it's, um, it, we're, we're, we're all we're asking them is for their reaction, their emotional reaction to the story. And then we're asking them to, from the story, tell us why they feel that way, which is, you know, an attempt to, to drive them back to the text. It, in order for it to become manipulation, it would, we would have to be doing something to make them feel a certain way rather than simply ask them to express what they, what their reaction was to the story. So, you know, for it to be manipulation, we would have to be trying to force them to feel a certain, to feel a certain emotion that the story But aren't you story using the story to create a certain feeling? Well, the story just does what it does and we're just reading it. I mean, I suppose if I, I could wake up one morning and think, man, I really want my son to feel sad today. I'm going to go get this story and force him to feel sadness then. Yeah. But if we're just reading the story and, and he has an emotional reaction to it, I'm not necessarily manipulating him. Right. I, I think Aesop might've been. <laughs> yeah. That, that leads to a question then about the purpose of story period. Um, because to, to ask the question, how do you feel about the ending? Isn't, isn't forcing a feeling it's asking them to to acknowledge whatever it is you know whatever feeling the ending has brought up and this is one of the i mean c.s lewis talks about that in um an experiment in criticism um, that one of the benefits of stories is that they give us windows right um and i i brought this i want to read at least part of this he says uh, he asks, what then is the good of, what's even the defense for occupying our hearts with stories of what never happened or entering vicariously into feelings, which we should try to avoid having in our own person hmm. or fixing our inner eye earnestly on things that can never exist? And he goes on to kind of answer it himself. He says, the nearest I've yet got to an answer is that we seek an enlargement of our being. We want to be more than ourselves. Each of us by nature sees the whole world from one point of view with a perspective and a selectiveness peculiar to himself. Um, we want to see with other eyes, to imagine with other imaginations, to feel with other hearts as well as with our own. Um, and then he uh, goes on in that section and says, we demand windows. So is that what you guys mean is that by the story provoking a feeling, we're feeling with other hearts? Well, it's, it's putting the reader in into that story, whatever the characters were facing or enduring, or um, and then whatever the outcome is, and then it's asking them what the result of the story was. What is the impact of the story on their feelings? And that because that's part of the purpose of story, uh, as I said, of, of any good rhetoric. I mean, you have the three types of proof, right? Logos, pathos, and ethos. What do those words mean? Logos meaning. I guess you could say the the argument itself. We'll just put it in real quick, simple terms. Ethos being the the character of the writer, speaker, authority. Um, that you know those are proofs, but um, that's easier to discern in oratory, um, in spoken word, uh, or if you really know something about the author. But in a in a story, perhaps the most powerful kind of proof is is pathos which is the the right appeal to the emotions how should the reader feel about this story and what is the story doing to cause them to feel that way that provoked the thought that it might be that story is is the only place where the three can be properly balanced because there's certainly a logos it's being embodied in the story Mm -hmm. there's an ethos that is fleshing out the embodiment it's not just symbols. There's there's a tone to it. There's a there's an ethic to it, and then there's the pathos because because we've got an analogy. We've got a picture to work with, like Nathan talking to David, you know, and creating that feeling of anger that David feels toward the toward the um, the, the rich man who stole the sheep, which is really interesting. I hadn't thought of that in, in light of this conversation, but Nathan definitely provokes a feeling. And that feeling in David is is an appropriate feeling and is essential to what follows. 
So he has to arouse that feeling and then direct it toward appropriate behavior. Uh, Hicks in um, in norms. Hicks connects what what you were talking about just a moment ago about the um, whether we're talking about the reader's feelings or the reader's or the window's feelings, as it were, the character's feelings. And Hicks Hicks connect those connects those two things. He he says um, that myths assure us of more than a healthy psyche. They provide the necessary basis for our civilized acts. Through myth, we see our own feelings refined and given meaning while we receive confirmation of others' emotions. So it's both, right? I'm, I'm experiencing three. another's emotions, and that's refining and yeah. given meaning to my own feelings. That's amazing. Well, that, that refinement part of it, I think, is is key. In, yeah. um, in The Abolition of Man, um, the guy that wrote it, what's his name? Lewis. Yeah, Jack. that guy. Jack. He... Uh, he you know, he, he refers back to the Republic and Plato's um, Plato's or Socrates argument that education is teaching us to love the right things or to, to feel the right way about about things. Um, and and then, and you know, so he brings that up and he kind of fleshes that out for us in his argument in the essay. But um that's part of that refinement, right? Is that we're, we are trying to teach ourselves to feel the right way about, you know, to love that, which is lovely and to, that which is shameful, which, which brings up, I think maybe one of the most important points we can make here is that feelings are not a matter of sentimental emotion. Feelings in that sense are that it's the chest right? It's the thumos. So feeling the way that you're supposed to feel about something is a matter of what it means to be a man. I love that. I love that you, you brought in the two concepts of refining the feelings and, and making them meaningful. Because, because our culture, which seems to exalt feelings to the ultimate, it makes feelings so ultimate that yeah, I'm caricaturing, but it, it, it doesn't think you should refine your feelings. Feeling strongly is the main goal, right? Just intensity of feeling, but not necessarily refinement. And that has a, an implication to it. That has the implication that, too, actually. On the one hand, it has the implication that there are feelings that can be in some way better, more appropriate, um more healthy but on the other hand and this would be worth the whole couple other conversations to me but on the other hand there's a question of how you go about refining feelings because to me to me what's what's on the surface is before you can refine your feelings you have to become conscious of them in a in a in a in a non i'll say selfish context in a, a non in a, let me say this, in an irrelevant context. What I love about reading a fairy tale is it doesn't matter whether Snow White lives or dies. It doesn't matter whether Odysseus gets home or not. Not to me, practically. But by analogy, it does, because it's a picture. And so the extraordinary thing is that we can feel intensely about people who don't even live. And what that can do is put us in touch with, aware of our own feelings. And once that happens, now that we're conscious of them, we can ask ourselves questions about, well, why did I feel that way? Right. And should I feel that way? Which is really hard if it's my own life. Somebody offends me, like, you know, you guys talk to me, so now I'm hurt. Just kidding. But, you know, so things happen in life and, and, and I have emotional reactions and I don't want to draw back and reflect on whether my emotions are appropriate because I'm invested in them. But if, if it's I about have them, they're necessarily appropriate. Exactly. Is what we assume, right? Exactly. Right. Where, where, whereas if, if, if it's Odysseus or if it's Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible and I feel a certain way or, you know, whatever, if I, if I see it in a story, now I can objectively, I can, I have some distance now 
from my feelings and I can, I can evaluate them because just as the story doesn't really matter because it matters too much. So in another sense, my feelings in regard to a story, in fact, wait, wait, what is what's interesting? Here's the irony because the story doesn't really matter. My feelings toward that story don't really matter. And therefore they're really important. I, I like that when you name two characters in a story for, to give as examples, you give us, Odysseus and Tom Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> Two very wise men on adventures. <laughs> um, hmm. Yes. I think most impossible of Tom, missions. I think most of Tom Cruise's adventures are in his own head. Um, or at least there seem to be a lot of them. Going Why do you on feel there. that way about him? Uh, never mind. <laughs> but I want to, I want to back up to something that you mentioned. You, you commented on the modern, idea that feelings having feelings are really all that matter right just having them strongly um, and that we have to validate all feelings as being equally valuable or equally important but I think that one reason we're having to clarify what we mean by this question is because as always seems to happen when when you go into one extreme there's always the tendency to respond by just going to the opposite extreme, right? So, um, whereas, you know, I, I use this illustration at church a lot or this image, but whereas we're, we should be walking. You should probably on, point out that you're a pastor and that's why you oh, do that. Right, you don't just yeah. walk up. Yeah, to I don't people just stand and, up and say this. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas we're supposed to be walking on a road, but we spend most of our time jumping from ditch to ditch you know, from one ditch on the side of the road to the other ditch on the side of the road. You mean we like general population, Generally, not the yes. three of us in this room. I, I, I think he's got course. me nailed. <laughs> right. Um, Dang it. so we respond to that cultural push towards the, you know, the overemphasis of feelings and mm -hmm. really the, it's a devaluing of feelings in the name of valuing them. Right. Exactly. But we respond to that by saying we don't really care about feelings. I don't care about your emotional response to this, or I don't care how you feel about this. And in doing so, I think we're causing a different problem. I think one, we're at least if what we're saying from what Hicks and Lewis and uh, Lewis in a couple of different um, settings, um, I think we're ignoring one of the great benefits of story by doing that. But I think we're also confusing terms. As, as a teacher, well, if by feelings we mean opinion, then, okay, there are certain times where I really don't care about a student's opinion. Right. If I can right. just briefly interject, if sure. a student's reaction is to the Iliad, I didn't like that story. Okay. That's a bad judgment. Right. I, I don't, right. I care about it in the sense that it would be better if he liked the story. Sure. But I don't care about it in the sense yeah. that it's not going to alter my appreciation for the Iliad or whatever. Right. If, if a student, let's say you have a um, high school student that comes in and they've just finished reading Hamlet, mm -hmm. you know, and they come into class and you say, so what did you think? They say, this story's dumb. Yeah. Okay. Or boring. I, uh, yeah. Or boring. Well, you, that student is telling me something about themselves, but they're yeah. not telling me anything about like. Hamlet, right? They, it is helpful because now I know their frame of mind, mm -hmm. but it's, but at, on another level, I don't, I don't care about that because their feeling, their opinion is wrong. Okay. It's the story is not dumb. It's not stupid. It's not boring. You know, it's not boring. Um, but well, I think that, uh, that's a different, <laughs> that's a different issue than what we're asking about in Tales of Wonder. That's true, because you don't ask what did you think of the story, do you? What, what no, exactly is no. the question you ask? Well, the question, and I should probably point out something else here too, but the question is how does the ending make you feel? Why does the ending make you feel that way? Mm. So we're not leaving at, at just, oh, it made me feel sad. All right, let's move on to the next question. It's, we're wanting them to justify and, and talk about it. We're wanting them to have a conversation about the impact of the ending. Maybe you should address that because, because that's a, that's a, a practical matter to me. Mm -hmm. You say to a eight or nine year old child, why do you feel that way? Right. 
I can imagine the child just looking at you and saying nothing or because it happened. How, how can you draw that question out of them or an answer out of them? Well, what is it about the ending that made you feel that way? So um, Little Red Riding Hood at the end, she's eaten the end. Okay. Well, I think that's in the Charles Peralt version. Um, is that, how does the ending make you feel? I was... I was surprised. I was shocked. I was sad. Why does it make you feel that way? Because I thought she would make it. Right? I thought she would survive. I thought someone would come and rescue her. Now now you have... Now you just brought in the question of expectations. Mm-hmm. What I'm wondering is, is that a practical... Is that a practical thing for the teacher to ha- hold in, in their back pocket or the parent to say, well, what did you think would happen? What did you expect to happen? Sure. Is that... Yeah. Are there other questions like that that might support the why did you feel that way question? In, in the book itself? Either either in the book or just some that, you know, you can't fit every question in the world in the book. Well, so like if a, if a student was kind of tongue-tied, tongue-tied yeah, you couldn't yeah. say? Can you help them unravel their tongue? Yeah, like, well, I, I like that question, you know, what did you expect to happen? But also questions like, you know, what was, was there a particular event or particular action that occurred? Like the wolf ate her mm-hmm. or she didn't survive. Okay, so get them to look more closely at it. Yeah. Another thing might be: is there a is there a character or a thing that did it? Mm-hmm. Right, like some 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 child might say it. You know that the beast was scary in Beauty and the Beast, okay. right? Or the wolf was scary in Little Red Riding Hood. Um, so it's not necessarily so an action, scary. but it's a specific you know character that that's scary. Um, or something about the scenery. You know, it's, she was in dark woods. You know, that's scary. Um, so you could get them. You know, ask them questions like that. If they're tongue-tied, you know, to draw out that. Is it okay to offer particular feelings? Like, could you say, well, did you feel relieved? Were you shocked? Were you surprised? I, did, I th- were you disappointed? If you're talking about, like, especially one-on-one, I think so. Because, you know, often you're doing this in a classroom. You could, you would, you might do this in a group setting. And then other students kind of, you know, other they students are not. Other. And then, they, yeah, they're not tongue-tied. They say something. And then they feed off of each other. Yeah. And... And so it could even be appropriate for the for the the mom or the teacher to you know if it's one on one homeschool situation perhaps to say well you know this made me sad because you know I wanted her to be able to to see her grandmother yeah um, and then you know so just why with it, the caution that sometimes some children will then just say oh yeah me too right right that's that's the only thing like they might feed off each other in in, in a way where they're imitating but then again. That's how we learn, right? Through imitation. Yeah, yeah that's true. And, and you're going to do this more than once. Mm-hmm. Give them practice reacting this way. I think I think it's important to know. expressing their feelings this way. Right. I, I think it's important to, oh, man, there's so many things to say, actually, because of what you guys have been talking about. Um, okay, we'll be quiet and you just talk for a while. Yeah. I, I think it's important to know that. That was our joke of the day. In, in Plato's Laws... The Athenian stranger asks the two guys that he's talking to, whose names I can never remember, um, he asks them, he said, which of these two, he gives them a scenario and he says, which of these two people is more, is more educated? Person A, who, who feels love towards those things which are lovely and feels disgust towards those things which are shameful, but can't tell you why. And person B, who does not feel love toward that which is lovely, nor sh- disgust towards that which is shameful, but can tell you why they are lovely or shameful. And, um, and, the, and, and, and in the dialogue, the answer is person A, the person who feels the right emotions toward the lovely and the disgusting or the shameful, rather than the person who does not feel those things, but can talk about why. Um, so of course, how much more so is the person educated who can feel love and disgust appropriately, as well as explain why something is lovely and something is, um, dis- you know, shameful? And I think that you know that's ultimately what we're trying to help uh, cultivate, right? Like Lewis says, because 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 the the. What you guys were talking about earlier, the reaction is somebody says something, somebody expresses an emotion or a feeling or a judgment that's stupid. I put scare quotes there. Um, and then and then we're like, I don't care if you think Homer's boring or stupid or whatever. And and so then our reaction is to 
as you said, Brian, to jump into the other ditch and say, well, I'm just not going to ask that question anymore. Yeah. And, you know, Lewis says in Abolition of Man that, um, well, I'll include the first part of the quotation because it's the one that's probably most familiar to all of us. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. But the next sentence says the right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. So when the student by sentiments, he he means feelings. Yeah. Or emotional response. Right. That's so interesting because he's got a whole essay called The Poison of Subjectivism. And if you if you read that carelessly, you could think he's opposed to feelings, but he's not. Uh, He's talking about just feelings. Yeah. Appropriate. Go on. Sorry. Yeah. So. So, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to cultivate this feeling love toward that which is lovely and feeling disgust towards that which is shameful. Um, but we're, but we, we need them to know that those feelings, those emotional reactions are appropriate by being, allowing them to talk about it. But then we can, we can refine them to use Hicks's term, or we can, um, you know, turn them into just make sentiments, yeah. make them meaningful by, getting them to express why they feel that way. So even, even, even with the, um, with the teenager, we'll assume he's a teenager cause teenagers, right? Am I right? Um, but even the teenager who says, well, Homer's boring. I don't want to read them. The, the appropriate response, I mean, in our appropriate response internally might be, okay, this guy needs some help with his judgment. But the appropriate response externally to him should still be, okay, why? Show me from the text what's boring about this or what um, what makes you not want to read it or whatever. And then and then then say, well, you know, then then kind of turn it on him and say, okay, well, is show me show me something good good in it. Find something that, you know, might not have might not have redeemed the whole book, but what is something that that you did happen to enjoy? Or other other students to express that. So then we're from the text. We're finding what strikes me as you say that I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I'm done. What strikes me as you say that is that feelings, generally speaking, it seems to me are a response to something, right? You don't just feel and out of the blue, you feel basically it seems there's two feelings. There's either attraction to something or revulsion from something. And, And there's a million ways that those two can, can express themselves. But so, so the child is either attracted to Homer or revulsed, revolted, revolted, uh, distracted. No, driven away. Repulsed. Repulsed. Okay. And, and, and of course it's in degree and it's complex, but, but here's the thing that I'm getting at is an appropriate feeling is not based on pride or, uh, I'll put it positively. An appropriate feeling is based on what's actually there. And if the child doesn't see, if I don't see what's actually there, if I don't have eyes to see, then I have bad taste. And really, it seems to me, I don't want to oversimplify, but it seems to me what we're talking about here is not only refining feelings, but cultivating good taste, mm-hmm. cultivating a taste for what is good for the soul. For and us, the ability to perceive those, the ability to those perceive things, it right? exactly, and it, okay. So then, I think that's like what I was getting the at. Is what I'm, There's what I the mean. objective and the subjective that are intimately related. If you learn how to see reality for what it is, you will learn to have appropriate feelings for reality. And sometimes you have to evaluate your own feelings because sometimes what they're telling you is you're not seeing what's actually there. Sometimes you're attracted to things that you shouldn't be. And sometimes mm-hmm. you're repulsed by things you shouldn't be because you're not seeing it for what is really there. And I, th- I think that's, well, there are a couple of things that made me think this, but I think that's one of the important um, motivations behind asking why does the ending make you mm-hmm. feel yeah. this way? It, and it and it does, like Matt said earlier, um it drives the student back to the story. Yes. Um, What's there. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and, and the intention here, I mean, I, um, we didn't, we didn't really discuss it in these terms when we were writing the book, but there is this desire, you know, uh, Matt and I do talk a lot about, um, about Plato and uh, of course the three parts of the soul, 
the appetites, the belly, the epithematic. Um, and then the noetic is the mind, you know, wisdom, um, the seat of wisdom. The inner perception. Um, yeah, inner perception. Um, and uh, th- those are two that I think we we perhaps think more about as as classical educators. We want to teach our children to avoid feeding the appetites, feeding the flesh in the wrong way. Mm. Um, we want to build up their mind. We want to to feed, and, and we sometimes think about it in the wrong way. We want to make sure they have the right information. We think of education in those terms, but that's where Lewis, at the end of the abolition, uh, first essay in the abolition of man, when he talks about men without chests, he's he's referring back to Plato there in the Republic, where he's describing men without chests. So you've got the head and the belly taken into consideration, but Plato said that the head, the noose, the noetic part of the soul is not strong enough to keep the appetites in check Mm. without the help of the chest. You can't just say to yourself, don't do that anymore. Right. Yeah. And it's not just information that's going to allow you to do that, right? It's having the... (laughs) having the right feeling, having, having the right, the, the courage and the valor, the fortitude, the yeah. manliness in, in the truest sense of the term. Um, All of which arise from a feeling for honor, as I recall. Right, right. And so understanding story for what is there and feeling how we're supposed to feel about these things, um, that taken together with the noetic can keep the appetites in check. But if we're only looking at, oh, what is, what is your opinion of this, you know, and, and their ability to interact with an argument about a story, if we're not engaging the feelings in the right way, then I'm afraid that we, we could end up making just more men without chests. So we're not engaging the person and the right. person then becomes partial. Right. They're partial, and that means that ultimately they're given over to their appetites. Mm, wow. Wow. Because yeah, if, if, if a, well, I don't want to push this too far, but if a student do it expresses incorrect an, an emotional response or a sentiment that is, uh, that is not one that we want, especially toward a book like Homer saying it's boring, and then the... And then the teacher or parent decides that they're no longer going to ask that question of the student, then what you're left with, if you're still going to try to inculcate just sentiments, what you're left with then is simply telling them what they ought to feel and then all of your reasons why. So Homer is lovely and these are all the reasons why, but they're my reasons, right? And and it seems like that would, would begin pushing toward or bordering on the line of manipulation or propaganda, those are two good words for it, yeah. So then in order to avoid that and to and still be able to properly cultivate just sentiments, we need to drive them back to the text. We need to get them to perceive those things that make them feel what they feel and, and try to get them to perceive those things that um, so then it's would not, be lovely. So then it's not really that you're trying to get them to express the right feeling in regard to the story but that you're trying to get them to express a feeling and then imply intelligence or reason to that feeling by looking at the story and seeing whether it's justified. So it's not like we're, we have this conversation right now for over a half hour, but we're talking about a simple little question. We're not, you know, it's how did you feel about the ending and why? And, And it's not, we're not, you're not wanting them to belabor this point. You just want them to raise it. Right. Right. We're, we're the ones belaboring the point. Right. Right. Um, but, but, but I get, because there's an anthropology in the question. Right. Right. For good reason. There's the whole philosophy of what a human being is. Yeah. And I think it's important to say this just, I mean, because of, um, the teachers and homeschool moms that are hopefully going to be using this or, or people in, I could even envision, you know, groups of adults reading through these fairy tales together and having conversations about them. Um, And as we were 
talking about doing this podcast, one of the, one of the things that I, I think I got kind of animated about was that there are other ways that we could word this question, right? There are other terms we could use. What, what's your opinion? What's your reaction? What did you think about the ending on, on and on? But I'm tired of giving up perfectly good terms just because we, because other people misuse them or because we sometimes commonly misuse them. Um, I think that it's important that we understand the role of feelings and emotion properly understood when it comes to stories. But I, I did want to say one other because thing. Because it helps with life. It does. It does. And um, I wanted to say one other thing about this, though, is that this is one relatively simple question in the midst of quite a few other questions that do not involve feelings, I would add. So um, there are no this, questions that don't involve this feelings. This is just a part of, well, not the word feelings. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so this is really just a part of what what we think a good conversation about these stories would look like. And, and, what, and just as a side note, totally unrelated to what you just said, so forgive me for that, but very practical to the Tales of Wonder book itself. If you're listening to this podcast because you want to know how to use that book well, um, rather than just you're interested in a conversation about feelings, then um, the note, there's an italicized note or instruction above the first question that uh, because it's italicized and kind of center just centered, you might you might miss out on its importance. Don't miss out on that. Do that first before asking this question. Um, it's an important part of the instructions. Right. Just because it's instructions doesn't mean you have to skip it. <laughs> How do you feel about that, Brian? What do you What do you mean? What's the question? Well, I think people should have to buy the book to find out. Oh, that's mm, manipulative. There you go. You're playing the with low, people's low feelings price. now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a salesman. Yeah. No, it's the instructions are to have the child narr briefly narrate the story back. Oh, that is important. You know... What's, what does strike me about this whole conversation is how you, it's not like you can not have feelings. You're either going to be attracted to something or you're going to be repulsed by it <laughs> in degrees. Or you're going to be bored by it, which isn't a non-feeling. And it strikes me very much from this conversation that what we're talking about is a gentle real life, meaning fairy tales, um, refining, cultivating of the feelings in, in a way that, that isn't sort of predetermined. It's not that the mom or the dad or the teacher before reading the story says, now this is the feeling you should have about this. It's just that we recognize the child is going to have a feeling or the people you're reading with are going to have feelings because that's human. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that we have feelings that I've often thought how much easier it is to love my wife when I like her. Right. And having, having, <laughs> having feelings is a great aid to, to the, you know, making the chest willing to work, if I can put it that way. I, I think there's a really great parallel here to the lost tools of writing as well. Um, you know, in the lost tools of writing, we have students ask, you know, whether a character should have done something. And we, we preached that here at, you know, the, the three of us and at Cersei, we preach pretty strongly against, um, moralizing and manipulating students. Right. And yet people yeah. sometimes ask, well, how is asking the should question, not a form of manipulation or moralizing? moralizing right. And the, the, the difference is, or the distinction that often comes up is, but well, we're not telling them the conclusion they have to draw. We're just, we're teaching them to ask the question and allowing them to come to the conclusion. We're, we're not forcing a conclusion on them. A judgment. Uh, another thing I'll just quickly add is that we're also not necessarily implying there's a moral answer. Sometimes it's practical. Oh, what, that's true too, what, right? What, what should, what should question, you do yeah. is not always a moral question, and, and but, yet, it, but it helps to them. It helps them think better morally. Right. And that's the key, right? It helps them to, to, to cultivate moral judgments right. by doing this, right. even though I never actually have to tell them. And I do believe there's a moral judgment, depending on the question. I do believe that there's a moral judgment 
Um, and I do believe that there's a there's that there there that that therefore requires a particular answer. Mm-hmm. But I'm not imposing that on them. I'm not. I'm not moralizing with them to get them there. I'm letting them practice the tool of asking the question in order to cultivate moral judgments so that they can come to that conclusion appropriately on their own, right? They develop that judgment for themselves. And I think the same thing applies here. There is a proper or or what Lewis called a just sentiment to have toward this thing that they just encountered. Um, And, but I'm not, I'm not trying to make them, have that sentiment, uh, impose it upon them or force it on them. I'm asking them the question about it so that they can cultivate that, that just sentiment on their own over time. Right. And sometimes it's not just a, a, a equals B sort of sentiment. Sometimes, sometimes the emotions are complicated and sometimes there are multiple appropriate feelings. In fact, most stories, because people respond to different things in the story. So it's not that you have to have A, B, C, D, or E. It's that you have to be conscious of why you have what you have so that you can adjust, um, um, not adjust it, but so that, so that you can assess it. And that's right. important. People have to learn that their feelings are accessible. Well, and that's the mm-hmm. should question is, the should question requires not just an answer, should, um, should, uh, Achilles, yeah, should okay, or should, <laughs> should Achilles withdraw from battle? Um, uh, but it it requires a justification, right? There's right. You know, oh, yeah. why pulling you back to the text, you know, yeah. Right. So it's pulling yeah. you back to the text, and Brilliant. and it's the the same motivation for the way we worded it here. Um, you know, not just how does the ending make you feel, but why? What what's the justification for it? So, um, so again, feelings require assessment and require justification. How, how do you feel about verbalizing nouns? Let me norms and nobility that. So in norms and nobility, <laughs> he says, um, he says, so he's talking about, he's talking about bad teaching here. And he says, um, the wrong headed custom of many teachers to wait until after their students have read a book before questioning them on it does nothing to remedy the passive reading habits of a television reared generation. Television reared. It's pretty old. Um, a YouTube <laughs> reared generation. And it puts a false premium YouTube, that's 10 years ago. on random retention and recall. Right. Then he says discussions, these discussions then in this teaching model, these discussions center around what the reading says rather than rather than on what it means or on how the student feels about what it says rather than on why he feels that way in the end the student is evaluated on his ability to remember but not to think now wow that's profound he's not necessarily making a case that for on? page 151 of to norms the, and nobility the school within the school chapter anybody who doesn't have that book order it right now he's you know he's not necessarily making a case for asking this question that's not his point here but but it's, it appears that there I, are I two. I like to think that is his point. It, yeah, yes. it, it appears that there are two important questions that we ought to be asking, which is, which is why does, why do I feel a certain way, and why does it mean what it means? But those questions don't make sense without the first two questions, which are, what does it mean, or what is it saying, and then, how do I feel? So I ask those two questions. In order to get at the two more important questions, the ones that drive me back to the text every time, which is, why does it mean that? And why does it make me feel that way? Mm -hmm. That's profound. That's profound. I like that you brought in the moralizing, too, because I think it is really, really important that parents and teachers not understand us to be saying, ask them why they feel that and then then make them feel the right way. Right? Right. It's not what we're talking about. And, and for those of you who, who are hearing this case against moralizing for the first time, I think there's an Ask Andrew podcast or a couple of them where you go into this in more detail, right? I so believe so. If they want to go back and listen to some of the older Ask Andrew podcasts to get more on this, it's a good, it's a good question, moralizing. It's a big issue. And now we're not sentimentalizing either. Yeah, the two things you can't do is, one, you can't moralize, which is to say impose a morality on somebody or something at a given time. And the other is to pretend there is no morality. 
in the same way you can't you can't sentimentalize which is to impose a feeling on someone the other is to pretend there are no feelings mm-hmm. right right and and both ditches are ditches i think that's that's important yeah. to i mean both extremes are are problematic i mean they may cause different problems but they still cause problems well, okay, so I got to get to work on other stuff, and I'm tired of you guys. Can we get on to something else now? Yeah, I, I need to go. I don't want to be here with you anymore. Okay. You you, that re- was plural. You plural. You're feeling repulsed? You mean y'all? Y'all. I don't want to be here with y'all Remember anymore. Remember where you are. I'm repulsed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in North Carolina. I'm allowed to say that. Y'all. I'm attracted to things All other right. than you guys right Thanks now. for listening. For those few who haven't turned us off already. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.